Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. It's Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, happy Groundhog's Day. And it feels a little bit like Groundhog's Day because we're going to talk about an issue we've been talking about for three years, but who's counting? Um, the return of uh, science standards. Um, we're back for round three. And it was it was a Rather bizarre couple of days of hearings that we sat in uh, sat in on in the House Education Committee. Yeah, Kevin, you and I were both there Thursday and Friday of this week. The legislature took two days of public testimony on a proposed slate of new science academic content standards. These are basically the uh, science standards that will be taught in Idaho's K-12 public schools and Charters, And it's a, it's a minimum. Standards are a minimum, but they also provide a roadmap that's really important to a lot of districts and a lot of charters who want some direction about what to do in terms of teaching science. We heard a lot of testimony uh, in this area over the past 48 hours. Uh, the way I scored it was that testimony over the past two days was unanimous mm-hmm. in favor yeah. of passage of the full, complete science standards intact, including references to climate change and global warming. The reason why we are here is because last year the legislature approved a temporary slate of new science standards after the House Education Committee led efforts to first remove uh, five sections, five paragraphs that references topics such as climate change, global warming, human impact on the environment. Now those science standards are set to expire, which is why the legislature is considering a proposed slate of new standards uh, testimony was unanimous in favor of the standards. I think I said, can't remember if I said or not, but 7-0 in favor Thursday, 21-0 in favor on Friday, and 995 in favor, five opposed during all public hearings that were conducted at six regional locations throughout the state in 2017. So while the public commentary has been overwhelmingly in favor of a set of science standards that robustly address climate change and global warming, what we heard in the committee from some of the members of House Education was continuing skepticism about how to address global warming, how to address climate change. I mean, you could tell from some of the questions uh, this week that uh, there's still some some skepticism on, on the committee. This is no slam dunk uh, for the legislature. And yeah, like you said, when the questions they asked, especially on Thursday, day one of the hearing, lawmakers were pushing back. Uh, against how the standards were written. I met with Representative Scott Syme, a Republican from Caldwell. Last year, he led the effort Mm -hmm. uh, to remove the five references. He told me that he is preparing a motion to remove either one or two paragraphs or one standard from the new set of standards and then uh, to approve the rest. That has not happened. Uh, The legislature took no action, Kevin, as we saw. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we are gearing up for uh, at least action from at least one Republican lawmaker uh, who holds sway and holds influence in that committee uh, to perhaps pick them apart and to pull out uh, one or two references or one or two standards. And the whole issue that Scott Simon has talked to me about is he said, in his opinion, the language in those standards and in the supporting uh, clauses and documents, he feels that uh, it pushes students towards a certain conclusion. It's difficult to really evaluate that position, though, because Uh, Scott isn't telling anyone which standards he has an issue with. Right, right. So let's talk about what's next, but let's also talk maybe first about the hearings themselves. It seemed it was a very choppy and ragged and and, and not a very well uh, orchestrated hearing. Um, 
Chairwoman Julie Van Orden really seem to be struggling, not just with the process, but also just sort of trying to set some ground rules about what we were talking about, what the committee was talking about this week. And, and you know, you sat through the three hours like I did. Uh, it, was, it was a very, very strange and very strained uh, set of hearings. Thursday, I felt, was especially bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, there, it was it, certainly both days were politically charged uh, hearings. Uh, but Thursday, the hearing completely fell apart and was ground to a halt at one point when it became very, very clear that the House Education Committee did not understand what it was doing. And, and by that, I meant the House Education Committee did not understand if it was voting on complete set of new science standards and driver's ed. We haven't even talked about that. Nobody's talking about driver's ed. Um, or if they were just talking about five, five changes sections. that were pulled right. out last year. Both Representative Gand Mordaunt and Chairwoman Julie Van Orden uh, were operating under the assumption that they were only looking at the changes. That was not, in fact, the case. Uh, some state officials got very anxious, and uh, they brought up Superintendent of Public Instruction at one point, uh, Sherry Ubarra, to try and clear things up. And, and Ubarra put out a strong call for action. She said, what you guys are doing is confusing the daylights out of our students. She's talked about how Idaho's science assessment test has been rejected and needs to be rewritten. She said, yeah, very- if we do not pass these standards today... We're going backwards in the state of Idaho. Very, very strong language from Superintendent Ibarra. Uh, For the four years that she's been in office, uh, Ibarra has tended to be very uh, reluctant to criticize the legislature or to second-guess the legislature. Tax policy is a particular example that I keep thinking of and going back to. So it was rather uncommon to have Ibarra really admonish an education committee as as strongly as she did. And that was just one of the strange uh, aspects of this uh, of this hearing, it seemed like a lot of the three hours was spent trying to figure out the parameters of what was being discussed. Uh, Julie Van or- Julie Van Orden, the, the chairwoman, was trying to draw a distinction between discussing the science standards and climate change. She uh, scolded several speakers during the course of the two days of hearings, including a student, a child, uh, yeah, a, a student testifying at a House committee about talking about the standards and not talking about climate change. She gaveled down one uh, one scientist during the hearing on Friday. And really all over a, a cosmetic difference here, in my view. I don't know how three years into this debate about science standards, a debate that really has been about climate change and climate change wording within the science standards, I don't know how in the world you can draw a clear line between talking about the standards and talking about climate change when those standards talk about climate change overtly, as you pointed out. I thought that was the most bizarre aspect of this whole thing. And and let's be clear here. We have a chairwoman of the House Education Committee uh, who is cutting off students, teachers, and university officials. The chairwoman of the Education Committee is cutting them off from speaking. And she did warn them uh, that this is a, a hearing on the standards themselves and not about climate change. But it's like you said, the reason we're here is because of climate change. Right. Uh, if, if climate change was not addressed in these standards, we would have approved standards and moved on long ago. You brought they, up they would the, be as non-controversial as the driver's ed standards that are also embedded within this complicated set of rules. I mean, it, it, this is a climate change debate. I don't see how you can get, get around that or past that. And I want to bring up one thing real quick. You brought up the geologist, uh, and that was a guy named Matthew Cohn, who testified on Friday, and he had some prepared remarks, 
and he said he, he did bring up climate change and the first time Van Orden admonished him or, or lectured him about staying on topic, he said, I am trying my best to identify and to specifically talk about the standards and he identified individual specific science standards yep. by name. I don't I think anybody else did that during the entire uh, two days worth of hearings. And so I looked up one of the standards that Matthew uh, had referenced when he was told that he was not allowed to talk about climate change and got, got gaveled down into silence and walked away. This is what that standard says, and I'm quoting, Mitigating current changes in climate depends on understanding climate science. Current scientific models indicate that human activities, such as the release of greenhouse gases from fossil fuel combustion, are the primary factors in the measured rise in the Earth's mean surface temperature, end quote. I don't understand how we can talk about changes to science standards if that's the science standards that we're changing. I don't understand that at all, about gaveling people down, uh, about silencing them when otherwise they stayed within the rules, and they felt like they were trying to stay on topic. Bizarre stuff. Yeah, it was a very strange hearing, and it sets the stage now for where we go from here, because as, as we mentioned, no action was taken on Friday, the rulemaking process is very complicated, so just quickly, here's uh, what the roadmap is moving forward. At some point, some date to be determined, and it wasn't uh, announced today, House Education will take it up. It's possible that uh, you know, Scott Syme will, make, uh, some, will propose some changes. We kind of expect that, and it's quite possible that the committee will go along and start to delete sections of the standards. This whole thing goes back to the Senate Education Committee. Yeah. And if the Senate Education Committee approves the standards in full, including these disputed sections on climate change, that becomes the rule and that has the weight of law. That Senate Education's actions would effectively override whatever House Education does, unless the two houses wind up agreeing on sections to delete. It's possible, I suppose remotely possible, that nothing gets done, that the whole science standard is tabled, and then we go back to older standards. That's fairly unlikely because basically both houses would have to do that. So it's, it, it could be parsing out a couple of sections or keeping all the sections intact. We're nowhere near the end of this debate. I did speak with Representative Van Orden after Friday's hearing adjourned, and I asked her, I said, has there been a date set to take up a vote on science standards? She said no. I asked her if they will do it. She said yes. I asked her if they will do it this legislative session, and she laughed in my face and said yes. Uh, so to be continued, we don't really know any more than what we've put in our articles, which if you want to get caught up and get, we have a little video component in Thursday's story. Uh, we have a full rundown of testimony from Thursday and Friday, both if you want to head over to IdahoEdNews.org. Check out those two stories. Those are two of the top stories near the top of our homepage. And we put everything in there that we know. We don't really know where they go next, uh, except for the fact that I do anticipate Representative Van Orden and House Education will, at some point, most likely sooner rather than later, uh, schedule potentially a vote on the standards, and then we'll see where we go from here. Because in theory, the whole process has to occur. Round two goes over side. again on the Senate side. Um, so we'll continue to cover it. Uh, we'll continue to keep you up to date. I direct you to our homepage at Idaho Education News for more on that and for all our latest stories. That was a big story this year. It's been a big story for three years, a lot of attention from the news media, but it wasn't the only thing going on this week. So I do want to switch gears, Kevin, uh, and talk about some of these uh, political races, mm -hmm. and, and particularly as we head into the May uh, primary election. Uh, some new public documents uh, have come out, some campaign finance reports, some Sunshine reports, have come out, and, and sort of while I was 
over at the legislature, you drilled down into these numbers, but uh, it reveals a lot about these races. Uh, let's go through a couple of them, maybe yeah. starting with the governor's race. Yeah, uh, so Wednesday was an important deadline for candidates for state office. This was the date that they were due to submit their uh, financial disclosure reports, their campaign finance reports, covering the second half of 2017. So the, the numbers are a month old, but they give you a sense of what happened the second half of 2017. Governor's race, as we expected, it's uh, it continues to be a big money race. As I broke it down, the three main candidates on the Republican side, Tommy Alquist, Raul Labrador, Brad Little, combined to raise $1.6 million between them just in that six-month uh, filing period. And I, I, the numbers are interesting, of course, and maybe more interesting is where the money's coming from because it really gives you a window into how these three campaigns are jockeying. Uh, Alquist outraised his uh, two opponents. A lot of that money, though, comes from Alquist himself. He put another, you know, he's put $700,000 of his own money into his campaign over the course of 2017. Not a lot of support from what I would call, you know, mainstream Republicans. Uh, I did not see any legislators or uh, statewide elected officials uh, contributing to uh, to his campaign. Contrast that with Brad Little, uh, a lot of contributions from mainstream Republicans, and then the list goes, you know, from Scott Bedke and Brent Hill and more than 20 other sitting legislators to uh, Phil Batt was in there, Ben Yasursa was there, Sherry Barrow was there. Um, you know, and we chronicle all of that in the story. So... As you would figure, and as we've always kind of thought about this race, uh, Brad Little is definitely positioning towards that mainstream Republican support. Um, Raul Labrador, a lot of his support coming from conservative circles in the state house. Uh, several more conservative lawmakers contributing to his campaign. Also tapped into conservative circles on Capitol Hill, uh, a pack that's controlled by Ted Cruz. Uh, Trey Gowdy, uh, Mike Lee, some some fairly heavy hitters in the conservative wing of Congress, supporting Labrador in his bid to return to the state house as governor. So it gives you a sense of where these three candidates are kind of jockeying. Also looked at the Democratic side, not a lot of news there. The the fundraising is just kind of beginning there. AJ Belukov largely self financing again as he did in 2014, uh, kicked 175,000 of his own money in, into um, into his race. Paulette Jordan just barely starting fundraising because she announced in December. So we'll watch those races fairly closely. But, uh, you know, it gives you a sense. There's a lot of money in this uh, Republican primary for governor. A lot of money in this Republican primary for governor, Kevin. I, I think you said something like $1.6 million combined from the three GOP re uh, frontrunners. What about the GOP race for state superintendent? Is there a lot of money involved in that race? You know, and we've talked about this race so many times, and it just gets, you know, stranger and stranger, curiouser and curiouser, <laughs> right? Um, Sherry Ibarra and uh, Jeff Dillon combined raised a little bit over $8,000 in the second half of 2017. I mean, that's a, a very uh, minuscule amount of money, and it it's, it goes even further than that. When you look at uh, Superintendent Ibarra's uh, 3400 she accounts for 2000 of it herself. And she got another 600 from senior staff in her State Department of Education, folks in her inner circle at SDE. Uh, Jeff Dillon's money um, is 5200 Almost half of it comes from a single donor from Encino, California. So 
there is not a lot of fundraising that either of these candidates are doing out on the ground with, uh, you know, with mainstream Republicans or conservative Republicans in, in the state. I mean, you don't see, you don't see legislators, you don't see, uh, you know, state officials past or present. You don't even see that many educators. Uh, Jeff Thomas, the uh, superintendent in Madison, yes. uh, gave some money to Ibarra's campaign. That's, you know, that was about the biggest name in Idaho education circles that I could see, um, you know, aside from the SDE senior staff that I mentioned before. There's just not a lot going on in this race on the fundraising side. And I asked the Democrats where they are in terms of uh, finding an opponent. The word is that they're still looking. Here we are in February, and, and for them, the search continues. In a race that really is, you know, you know no no candidate is really taking the race by the throat and, mm -hmm. and establishing themselves as, you know, a you know, well-funded, well-oiled campaign machine. So it's just a very odd race right now. The fundraising side of it is slow, but also the events, the appearances, the rallies, uh, the press conferences, the meetings with constituents and educators, that appears to be slow as well. The physical manifestation of the campaign that you would look to start gearing up. Uh, we've reached out to both candidates in the superintendent's race saying that we're interested in attending any personal appearances, rallies, meetups with constituents. Uh, they're passing out literature at the, at the park on a weekend. We would probably want to go, but we've been sort of told, stay tuned. Uh, we'll let you know when you need to know. Uh, and, and February's kind of a pivot point here, too, because this is... Uh, the Lincoln Day circuit for Republican candidates. So, and that's beginning in, in some of the smaller communities already. This is uh, when, you know, traditionally Republican candidates, uh, you know, hit a lot of the smaller towns and some of the bigger communities as well on that tour. So, you know, it remains to be seen how how active these two candidates are going to be on the uh, on the Lincoln Day circuit. And we may get what we saw four years ago. I mean, Superintendent Ibarra has been very clear that. Um, She's an educator first, that she's not a typical politician, that she won't do things like a typical politician would. Uh, and so, uh, you know, maybe we'll see. Uh, four years ago, it was a fairly slow campaign, and when there was no incumbent in the race. And she overcame severe fundraising disadvantages in both the primary and the general election. And it worked out just fine for so, her. So, you know, she may be looking at it as, well, this has worked for me in the past, you know, if it ain't broke, why fix it kind and, of a thing. And the difference this go-around would be she does bring the name recognition uh, to the race. You do have to consider her uh, the front runner at, at this point. And so maybe she's saying, I'm even in better shape than I was four years ago. Yeah. And I won four years ago, so I'm not going to mess with this formula. And I'm going to be focused on being an educator. That may be some of it, yeah. uh, but we'll see. However the race unfolds, we'll be, uh, we'll be following it closely. All right, one last topic. It also has to do... Uh, with the elections coming up. And this was a really interesting story, Kevin, you worked on. Rather than waiting around for the campaign to come to you, you went to the campaigns, and you've been asking the gubernatorial candidates specifically how they feel about this now controversial proposal to expand state government and create the new highest paid position in state government, uh, that of a higher ed CEO. What are they saying? Well, there's not a lot of enthusiasm. And the reason that this is significant is... Um, if the legislature were to create this position and begin this uh, streamlining process, this reform process that Governor Otter has been talking about, the reality is this office, this wing, whatever it is, and this new position, the CEO or whatever you wind up calling uh, this, this person, 
this is going to be inherited uh, by the next governor. Yeah. And it's really going to be important and significant and maybe redefining uh, when you have a new governor in, in office, you know, what do they do? So I wanted to ask them what they make of it. And all five of the major candidates, Republican and Democrat, nobody's on board with this idea at this point. Uh, Raul Labrador calls it growing government. Uh, Paulette Jordan calls it ill-defined. Um, the closest you can get to anything resembling support, and this is from Brad Little, and you got to remember Brad Little is... Governor Otto's right-hand man. <laughs> yes, and, and chosen successor. Even Brad Little is choosing his words extremely carefully. He says the idea deserves robust discussion, but he's not saying that he supports it. He's not saying he opposes it. The other four candidates, pretty, um, pretty explicit, saying that they oppose it. And I think that's significant. And the reason why I reached out to the campaigns is I think that that's uh, something that legislators are, are probably thinking about already is, well, if we create this position, what's the long-term prognosis? And legislators have a couple of different options here. Uh, they can do nothing. I mean, that's one option. Uh, they can do everything that Otter is asking for, including creating this position. And there is maybe more of a middle ground in that uh, the governor has also proposed some one-time money, some consulting money to try to get a handle on what kind of savings you could achieve by hiring a, a CEO and consolidating administrative work uh, within the universities. Otter has asked for 500000 you know, it's possible that uh, the legislature puts some money into consulting. Maybe it's 500000 Maybe it's a little bit less. I don't know. But I think that that may be uh, the middle ground that you see. And, and that came up a little bit in my, uh, in my research with the gubernatorial candidates. Both A.J. Belukov and Paulette Jordan, for example, said, okay, there's some logic to maybe doing a consultant, but why, why are we going to hire and create this position while we're doing the consultant study? Let's do one and then do the other. So that sentiment, you're hearing that a little bit. You, you'd heard it last week from, from Bob Custro when he's before JFAC. You heard it a little bit from, from JFAC when they were talking about it. So we'll see. If I were handicapping it, and I've said this before, uh, I think that there may be some consulting money. There may be that phase of this project that gets done. I think that's a lot more likely at this point than the creation of a CEO. Now, that's all subject to change. You know, political sentiment can always turn around, but that's my best guess of where things might wind up. So you see a, another consultant uh, over the interim looking at studying government. That would be shocking, Kevin. Yeah, I know. I mean, isn't that... Uh, but but that's, you know, that's, that can be the mode of operation at, at the legislature, and it is one-time money. I think sometimes that's a little bit easier sell at the state house. You're not locking into a position. You're not creating a... You know, a new you know division or agency or whatever you want to call it. It's one time money. You find out what you find out, and you're not locked into it long term. So, it, yeah, we'll see. Interesting point. I love the context that you brought up, and just to expound on that, you talk to the five leading gubernatorial candidates at this point. Based on the timeline with this CEO, we very well could be looking at them not even getting around to hiring this person until the new governor's in office. They've already said they don't want it, uh, but we heard from State Board of Education member Andrew Scoggin, who said he has kind of had to recruit these types of individuals in uh, the business world and business settings that would go out and look for efficiencies. He said they're in demand. Uh, it's a complex, time-consuming process. So we very right. well could right. be looking at not getting around, if the legislature even approved the funding for this, 
not getting around until identifying and hiring a candidate until after the November election, so we would have had a new governor in place who already says he or she doesn't want this. That could be awkward. Right, and, and yeah, the whole timing of the hiring, that came up a little bit too this week. Uh, Linda Clark and Bob Locke and the two co-chairs of the Higher Education Task Force, they went before the Senate Education Committee to maybe try to answer some questions about the CEO proposal and maybe try to allay some concerns and address some, some criticism. And when, when Linda Clark talked about the timetable, she said, look, we want to get the consultant on the ground as soon as possible because we know it's going to take time to hire a CEO. Yeah. And, and, he, and she made the point that she thinks that you can't really wait, that you need to do the two at the same time. I don't know if that's uh, going to um, win over legislators because, you know, at least one, um, Jim Guthrie, was saying, look, you're, you're asking us to fund a position, and it's not even clear what that position looks like. That's a big leap of faith you're expecting from us. So. State officials also have not been able to assign a dollar amount in terms of savings to anticipate, and legislators mm-hmm. have asked for specific dollar amounts and asked for specific dollar amounts that other states have saved. We've been told it's significant. We've been told they've been able to realize tuition freezes. Uh, but no dollar amount uh, has come forward. So uh, I think that's interesting. It's also not the only major hire. We're going to be looking at our university system. Uh, if I'm remembering things, we have at least three we university three president positions university presidents, that we're looking uh, to hire right now. Yes. Uh, a lot going on. Yes, certainly. A lot of moving parts. Yes. Anyways, I think that covers uh, this week. It was uh, a big week for education. A lot of public interest in those science standards. Uh, uh, More than 100 people on Thursday for sure, maybe close to 100 people on Friday. Uh, Turned out at 8 in the morning uh, to go to the state capitol and participate in these discussions. Uh, No matter where you stand on the issue, I really think that says something about the public and the interest with these standards. And the public comments last year, I mean, that's a lot of comments. I mean, you just don't see 100 people turn out for anything at 8 in the morning on a Thursday or a Friday. Uh, So hats off to the members of the public who did participate, and we will continue to follow that issue and track the issue of the science standards. We will let you know if House Education puts that on agenda for a vote. Uh, Meanwhile, the easiest way to follow Idaho Ed News for all of our breaking news is to hop on Twitter and follow us at Idaho Ed News. We break all our stories there. We live tweet uh, the big meetings and try to keep everybody as informed as we can. As always, I want to thank everybody for listening to Extra Credit. We have a lot of fun uh, with this podcast, and we enjoy trying to break down this complex intersection of uh, policy and politics within the education realm. So thank you for joining us uh, for this journey. I am Clark. I'm Kevin. Happy Groundhog Day and have a good week.